This podcast is going to be totally righteous. This is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Sometimes the dad jokes are so bad I just can't pass them up. And really, this far in, you kind of knew what you were signing up for when you started listening today. Sorry, not sorry, as the kids are not saying anymore. Our old friend Dakaya Sune makes a, well, not really a reappearance, I guess, since it's not like it ever left in the first place. But this whole passage we're looking at today, starting in chapter 9, verse 30, and going through chapter 10, circles around this word, which is usually translated as righteousness in the English versions. So just to recap this word quickly before we dive in, this is one of those words that carries with it a whole range of related meanings in the original languages. Greek in this case, but the Hebrew word tzedakah in the Old Testament is the same, basically. Those meanings include what might pop to mind first for us English speakers, doing good stuff and not doing bad stuff. Being a good person is what makes you righteous. But the word went beyond that as well in Greek, Or maybe it's better to say that it both broadens out and specifies what it means to do good stuff. We aren't just talking about generic goodness here. First, the word also carries with it a sense of faithfulness, as in keeping your promises, doing what you say you would do. You make a promise and you come through. So if I tell Meredith that if she takes the kids to the beach today, I will use that empty quiet house time to finish this episode, but I actually catch up on all the Premier League games I missed over the weekend, that would be unrighteous. (laughs) Hypothetically, of course. This is why N.T. Wright often translates the word covenant faithfulness when it is referring to God. God has made promises, a covenant, and their righteousness demands that they come through on them. Related to this is a second aspect of the meaning, which is fulfilling the implied obligations you might have. This might be like what we would use the words duty or responsibility for. So by having children, for example, I have a duty to take care of them whether or not I promised that with actual words. If I as a parent don't take care of my children, I would be unrighteous. Another way of looking at this is as being in right relationship with others and with the world, fulfilling my obligations and treating others in a way that is the right way, according to what they expect and what they deserve from me. This can apply to other humans, to God, to creation, to my pets. Do I give them what I owe them? Treat them as they should be treated. Fulfill my obligations to them. If I do, then I'm righteous. And this is not far from the third aspect of meaning which would be from the legal setting more specifically, of being declared in the right by a judge. In the ancient world, there usually weren't criminal trials. Crime was addressed in other ways. Trials before a judge tended to be what we would call civil cases. I accuse someone of having wronged me in some way. The judge would then declare the winner of the case righteous in the sense of they have fulfilled their obligations toward the other person. And he would declare the loser unrighteous in the sense of they have, in fact, wronged the other and must make amends for it. If one were declared righteous, then they would be restored to their place in the community, cleared to resume their status and place in their relational world with no shame. This is why Paul uses this sense of the word to describe how God, acting as the judge, declares humans righteous 
and in so doing, restores them to, or includes them in, God's family, the people of God. They have been declared in the right, and so are included in the community. N.T. Wright uses the phrase covenant membership or covenant status to convey this sense of righteousness in Romans. So, let me explain. No, there is no time. Let me sum up. Dekaiasune, righteousness, can refer to God or humans, the actions they do, and the status that comes from those actions. The fundamental meaning is doing right, both in the sense of doing what you say you will do and in the sense of fulfilling your obligations. Doing morally good things is included under that broader umbrella. If one has been faithful and has fulfilled their obligations, then they would have the status of righteous and could be fully a part of the social world. Got all that? Good. Because Paul is going to use it a lot in the first half of this passage. And N.T. Wright translates it in different ways depending on the context to highlight these different aspects of meaning. So, in what I'm going to read this episode, the word dekaiasune is translated in all of the following ways. Covenant membership, defined by the covenant, covenant faithfulness, covenant status, and just faithfulness. All those probably say righteousness or righteous in other English translations you might read. But as you can tell from the list I just read, N.T. Wright is concerned that we not miss the covenant implications of what Paul is saying. If you remember from last episode, this whole section of the letter is not about who is good and who is bad. It's about who is now a part of God's family through Jesus and why Israel, on the whole, seems to be on the outside looking in from Paul's perspective. It's about, in other words, who is a part of the covenant promises that God made in the Old Testament and whether the chosen people Israel, seeming to be on the outside, whether that calls into question God's faithfulness to those promises. It's about righteousness in all senses of the word. Okay, let's dive in with the first chunk of this passage, starting in chapter 9, verse 30, and then going through chapter 10, verse 4. What then shall we say? That the nations who were not aspiring towards covenant membership have obtained covenant membership, but it is a covenant membership based on faith. Israel, meanwhile, though eager for the law which defined the covenant, did not attain to the law. Why not? Because they did not pursue it on the basis of faith, but as though it was on the basis of works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as the Bible says. Look, I am placing in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will trip people up, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. My dear family, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God on their behalf is for their salvation. I can testify on their behalf that they have a zeal for God, but it is not based on knowledge. They were ignorant, you see, of God's covenant faithfulness, and they were trying to establish a covenant status of their own, so they didn't submit to God's faithfulness. The Messiah, you see, is the goal of the law so that covenant membership may be available to all who believe. From the first verse, we see why broadening our understanding of righteousness is important. It makes sense of what Paul is saying about the nations, by which he means the Gentiles. Because most Gentiles in Paul's day, just like most people in ours, would absolutely say that they aspired towards righteousness. Now, they might define what being a good person means slightly differently, but the concept itself was certainly an aspiration for them. As N.T. Wright puts it, they would have been fairly content with their pagan beliefs and practice. What was not 
an aspiration for the Gentiles was, as Wright translates it, covenant membership. The Gentiles would, by definition really, not be interested in the slightest by being included in the covenant promises of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And yet, through Jesus and by putting their trust in Jesus, Gentiles have found themselves righteous. They are a part of the family of God that was foretold in the Old Testament. They are included in the covenant promises that God had made. Israel, on the other hand, as verse 31 points out, very much wanted to be a part of those promises and was eager to get there through the law, Torah, but found that they didn't get where they wanted to go. Wright points out that the idea here is very close to what we saw back in chapter 7. The more Israel clung to the law, the more it found that evil lay close at hand and that covenant membership could not be had in that way. The problem, Paul says, is that they have fundamentally misunderstood the way in which one becomes part of God's people. They were trying to become God's people through works instead of through faith. This is a callback to an idea that showed up earlier in Romans, where we emphasize that works of the law, like Paul is talking about here, should be taken not as doing good things, but as doing the things that mark us out as a distinct ethnic people, circumcision, Sabbath, keeping kosher. The idea of trying to attain the law through works would be that being God's people comes through ethnicity by being descended from Abraham and doing the things that those descended from Abraham are supposed to do. Then we will have attained the status we're looking for. We will be the right kind of people. We will be good Jews and therefore God's people. But Paul says the law is attained through faith, that what matters is where we put our trust, not doing the right things to mark ourselves out as the right people. Richard Hayes says about these verses, One interpretive tradition in Christian theology holds that they failed to attain the law in the sense that they were unable to perform all the commandments perfectly. In the present discussion, however, Paul makes no such claim. The problem is not that they were unable to do what the law requires. The problem is they pursue obedience not through faith, but through works. This suggests that the aim of the law is actually not perfect performance of works at all, but something else. That something else being faith. This fits with what Paul goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 2. The zeal with which Israel has pursued God is not the problem. They're trying real hard. The problem is trying real hard is not what God ever actually wanted. What God wanted was faith, that people would put their trust in God and only in God. This would have implications on how people live, of course, more on that later, but the focus is not on the doing right things, but on the trusting God. Before we get to that, though, a quick word on the quotation Paul makes in the final verses of chapter 9. He's actually mashing together two different verses in Isaiah, Isaiah 28.16 and Isaiah 8.14. In fact, the Isaiah 28 verse is kind of the beginning and ending of Paul's quote, the bread about the Isaiah 8 sandwich, if you will. So the middle of the quotation, Isaiah 8, in that uh, chapter, God is referred to as a stone in a double sense. For those who fear God, who put their trust in God, God is a stone of refuge, a fortress. But those who do not put their trust in God will find a stone to trip and fall over. Isaiah 28 is a messianic passage 
referring to God in the future, putting a solid foundation stone in Zion, upon which a new people of God would be rebuilt, full of justice and, well, righteousness. Paul sees Jesus as the stone in all these senses, the solid foundation upon which God's renewed people will be built, the one who will protect his people and ensure their salvation, and the one that trips up those Jews who have been trying to pursue the law by works. And we bring all this together to understand the final verses of this first chunk of the passage. The covenant faithfulness that Paul refers to the people of Israel being ignorant of in verse 3 is not that they don't understand the right things to do according to the law. It's that they fail to recognize who Jesus is and how he fits into God's plan for faithfully fulfilling the covenant promises that God made in the Old Testament. Since Jesus is the person through whom God keeps the covenant, he is therefore the embodiment of God's covenant faithfulness. He is God's righteousness walking around. And so rejecting him means that you are ignorant of that covenant faithfulness. You don't understand what God is doing to keep their promises. Paul deeply desires, he says, that his fellow Jews would recognize this, that they would return to God and be saved. But for now, they just don't see it. The rock that is supposed to be the foundation of their salvation and inclusion in the promises of God is, for now, just something they trip over. They reject Jesus, not recognizing God's faithfulness in him. They refuse to submit to Jesus. And since he is God's faithfulness embodied, they are refusing to submit to God's covenant faithfulness, God's righteousness. They are ignorant of their own history in the sense of understanding the way God is bringing that history to its climax. They thought that righteousness came from doing the things that marked them out as Jews, being the right sort of people. But Jesus is bringing into the open the plan God had all along, the one laid out in the Old Testament itself, if it's read correctly, which was for all people to be included in God's family. This is what verse 4 is getting at. This new family is for all who believe, not only those who do the distinctively Jewish works in the Torah. And yet, this means that Jesus is the fulfillment of Torah, because this is what Torah was pointing to all along. Some translations have made this verse say that Jesus is the end of the law, that now that Jesus lets us get to God through faith, the law is an outdated, useless thing. But this is very much not what Paul is saying. The Greek word here is telos, which, yes, can mean that something is over, but it's also used to describe something that is the fulfillment, the culmination, the most perfect and complete version of something. Quoting Richard Hayes again, this sentence explains what was said in the foregoing sentence. The real aim of the law, the righteousness of God, is Jesus Christ. Strongly established Christian tradition, especially in the Reformation churches, has construed this statement to mean that Christ is the termination of the law. But this interpretation makes no sense at all in the context of Romans. Paul has already written that the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God in chapter 3, verse 21, and that his gospel of righteousness through faith confirms rather than abolishes the law. That was chapter 3, verse 31. What Paul is going to be saying in the rest of this chapter is not that Jesus put an end to the law, but that Jesus fulfills the purpose the Torah always had. 
And that being in Jesus means that the Christian is able to fulfill Torah in a way that those trying to get there through works just weren't able to. Those who put their trust in Jesus can, through the Spirit, do Torah because they are doing what Torah always intended, which was not, as Hayes said earlier, perfect performance of works, but was instead fully trusting God alone. For now, let's go on to the second part of the section where Paul begins to build his case by trying to show further that this was the idea in the Old Testament all along. So starting in verse 5 of chapter 10. Moses writes, you see, about the covenant membership defined by the law, that the person who performs the law's commands shall live in them. But the faith-based covenant membership puts it like this. Don't say in your heart, who shall go up to heaven? In other words, to bring the Messiah down. Or who shall go down into the depths? In other words, to bring the Messiah up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we proclaim. Because if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because the way to covenant membership is by believing with the heart and the way to salvation is by professing with the mouth. The Bible says, you see, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek since the same Lord is Lord of all and is rich towards all who call upon him. All who call upon the name of the Lord, you see, will be saved. So there you go. Clear as could be. We can just keep moving on to the next passage, right? <laughs> ah, Paul strings together Old Testament allusions and quotations for the whole rest of this chapter. Again, for the purpose of establishing that the argument he is making is not something new, but is something firmly rooted in the Old Testament promises themselves. But man, oh man, does it make for some dense, convoluted reading. The link with the previous verses tells us that what Paul is doing in these verses is explaining how he can say that Jesus is the fulfillment of Torah. At first glance, Paul seems to be contrasting what Moses says in verse 5, the person who obeys the law will live, with Paul's idea from verse 6 and on, that you just need to believe in Jesus and his resurrection. But this would miss the somewhat important detail that all of this, Moses' words in verse 5, and what Paul says in the verses that follow, they are all quoting from the same chapter in Deuteronomy, chapter 30. In fact, they're all from one five-verse stretch in that chapter. These are all Moses' words. Paul is not saying something new. From his perspective, he is explaining what Moses already said. Deuteronomy 30 comes at the end of that book, after Moses has set out the whole Torah for the people, and it's a really interesting chapter. We talked about this some in our sermons on Deuteronomy when we went through that book together, by the way. But for those of you who weren't with us, Deuteronomy 30 operates on the assumption that the people will fail, that they will fail to keep the law that has just been laid out. God knows that they will fail and that all the curses and suffering that comes with that failure will fall upon them. Moses has already said all this. And then we get to chapter 30, where he pleads once more with the people to choose life after death. Except for one thing, this is a plea for the future. The chapter begins with Moses saying, when all these things have happened, that is, when you have failed and have gone off into exile, that won't be the end. There will be the chance for life again on the other side. You can make the choice for, of life over death then, too. Failure is not the end with Yahweh. 
Now, you may be hearing echoes of what we talked about last episode in Romans 9 here. It's almost like Paul is making one sustained argument through this whole section or something. Wild. So on the other side of exile and curses will come blessings and return. And Paul starts in verse 5 in Romans by quoting Deuteronomy 30.16. If you obey all the commandments of Yahweh, then you will live. And then in verses 6 through 8 in Romans, Paul moves back in Deuteronomy to the verses right before 30.16. He quotes verses 11 through 14. And I'm going to read those for you in the original Deuteronomy. Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear and observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. No, the word is very near to you. And this is key. Remember this part. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. Moses, and Paul is co-signing this, seems to think that doing all the commandments is not too hard, that it is right there possible for Israel to do. As N.T. Wright says, this life-giving doing will be a matter not of a struggle to obey an apparently impossible law, but of heart and mouth being renewed by God's living word. Paul is not, in other words, presenting a contrast between trying to obey all the commandments and faith, any more than Moses was in back-to-back verses presenting such a contrast. In both cases, Moses and Paul are explaining the way in which the seemingly Herculean task of keeping the commandments, the ones that lead to life, how that can be accomplished. Moses foresaw a time on the other side of exile when God's word would be planted in the hearts and mouths of God's people, thus enabling them to actually fulfill Torah in a way that they never had been able to before, which is precisely what Paul is saying happened in the coming of Jesus. Those who put their faith in Jesus, he has said, have the spirit of God inside them, enabling them to fulfill all the commandments and to find life there, just like Moses said. Paul could have quoted several other passages like Jeremiah 31, where the prophet foresees the commandments being written on the hearts of the people, or Ezekiel, where the people's unresponsive hearts of stone will be replaced with hearts of flesh that will enable them to truly love God. Paul's point, N.T. Wright says, is that those who share the Christian faith are in fact doing the law in the sense that Deuteronomy and Jeremiah intended. This is what Moses meant all along, Paul is saying. And here's another fascinating little wrinkle that I just noticed as I was writing this. Paul takes Moses' words in Deuteronomy about the Torah not being far away, such that people would need to go over the sea or up into heaven to bring it back down so they could hear it. And he replaces Torah in the quotation with Messiah. He's linking back to verse 4, saying that the Messiah, Jesus, is the fulfillment of Torah. And we know that we don't need to go up to heaven or down into the depths to find Jesus because Jesus' spirit is already within us, enabling us to fulfill God's law. And we know that God's word is in our mouths and on our hearts, as Deuteronomy says, when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, as Paul says. 
the trust in Jesus that is central to all this is literally right there on our tongues. That confession of faith and the belief in the heart is what Moses and Jeremiah were anticipating, which means that now the Christian is able to do what Moses and Jeremiah were anticipating. And this doing of Torah now, enabled by the Spirit, will result in, as Moses said, life. They will be saved, as verses 9 and 10 say. Salvation for Paul is not a synonym for righteousness, being a part of God's family. Salvation refers to Paul, for Paul to the future event of being given life eternally. That on the day God finally judges the world and puts everything right, you will be included in the life of the age to come. You will not be put to shame, as verse 11 says. And then to clinch it all, Paul quotes Joel 2.32, that all who call upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. Now, in Joel, this referred to the faithful remnant of Israel, the ones who repent and return in the face of God's judgment. We've talked about this idea of a remnant before. All from among Israel who repent and return to God will be saved. That is what Joel is literally saying. But Paul, as he often does, takes it, well, even more literally. (laughs) It says all who call on the name of the Lord. So that must mean all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord has shown that they have the word of God in their mouths and on their hearts, which means they will be able to do Torah fully in the way that it was intended to be done, which means they will find life like Moses promised both now and in the age to come, when they will be saved. That is what Paul is getting at in these verses. And he continues, you'll be thrilled to know, I'm sure, with even more Old Testament allusions through the final verses of chapter 10. This is starting in verse 14. So how are they to call on someone when they haven't believed in him? And how are they to believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear without someone announcing to them? And how will people make that announcement unless they are sent? As the Bible says, How beautiful are the feet of the ones who bring good news of good things. But not all obeyed the good news. Isaiah asks, you see, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of the Messiah. This might make us ask, did they not hear? But they certainly did. Their sound went out into all the world and their word to the ends of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not know? To begin with, Moses says, I will make you jealous with a non-nation, and stir you to anger with a foolish people. Then Isaiah, greatly daring, puts it like this, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I became visible to those who were not asking for me. But in respect of Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disbelieving and disagreeable people. What Paul is doing here is to return to the question, what about Israel, though? It's all well and good to conclude that when Joel said all, God meant for salvation to go beyond the Jews, but shouldn't it still include the Jews? Why does it seem like more Gentiles are responding while most Jews are not? The first verses of what I just read are pretty straightforward. For someone to respond to this message and believe, they need someone to bring that message to them. This has happened both among the Jews, whom Peter and John and other apostles were called to bring the good news to, and among the Gentiles, whom Paul and his companions were called to bring the good news to. The problem arises in verse 16, but not all obeyed the good news. Those who have heard of Jesus the Messiah 
they have not all responded appropriately with faith to the good news that God has done this thing that was spoken of by Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Joel and all the rest. How do we understand this mixed response? Well, it's like Isaiah said, who has believed our report? Even the great prophets in the Old Testament, in fact, almost all of the great prophets in the Old Testament found that most people rejected their message. Why would this be any different? So they haven't responded to the message, but this isn't because they haven't heard it. After all, the ends of the earth, Paul says, have heard the message. The Gentiles themselves have responded to it, which means that clearly Israel had heard it too, and they knew the message too. This is the thrust of verses 17 and 18. All people, Jews and Gentiles, have heard the message, but Israel hasn't, for the most part, responded. Again, Paul returns to the question of why. He responds with a triple quotation that will lead us into the final chapter of this third section of the letter thematically, and we'll look at that next time. Paul quotes first Deuteronomy again, chapter 32 this time, verse 21. They made me jealous with what is no God, provoked me with their idols, so I will make them jealous with what is no people, provoke them with a foolish nation. Then he quotes Isaiah 65, 1, and then follows it with Isaiah 65, 2. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. And then verse 2, I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Paul returns again to the point that this was the story all along and what the prophets anticipated as well. God has held out his hand to a rebellious nation, Israel, that doesn't respond to the good news over and over again. And so God looks for another way of getting through to them. And here's where Paul brings it all together. God has made sure that the nations that have not looked for him, the Gentiles, that they have heard and been included in the covenant promises through Jesus. And he has done so for two reasons. The first is for the sake of the Gentiles themselves, that they might be included in the worldwide family of God that had always been the plan. But the second reason the Gentiles have been included is actually for the sake of Israel, that they would be provoked to jealousy like a child who sees their sibling enjoying some privilege that they have forfeited and vowing to do better next time so they aren't left out again. Paul is acknowledging that Israel is not currently believing. For the most part, they are rejecting Jesus, who was supposed to be their Messiah. But Paul is hoping that when Israel sees the Gentiles enjoying the privileges that Israel had been originally given, this goes back to the very beginning of this section, chapter 9, that they would have a change of heart, that they would repent, that Israel would return to their God. Now, this is a topic that will be explored more with an added twist next time as we go through chapter 11. So read ahead for that. And until then, I hope this was a helpful and interesting rundown of chapter 10. And I will see you next time. Bye.